Hi there, this is Pastor Aaron of Fairview Cornerstone Baptist Church, and we pray that through the preaching of God's Word that you were encouraged and pointed to Christ, our glorious Savior. If you have any questions or comments, uh, you can find us at www.fairviewcornerstone.com, and uh, please write to us. We'd love to uh, hear any questions or comments. We pray the Lord encourage you through this sermon. Well, I want to just go ahead and welcome all of you here this morning, and I invite you to turn with me to the book of Isaiah. We're going to spend a little bit of time in the Old Testament this morning as we look at the final sola of our sola studies, to God alone be the glory. And so we're going to just pick up in Isaiah 48, verse 1 and read down to the end of verse 11. So I invite you to stand with me as we read from the Word of God. Hear this, O house of Jacob, who are called by the name of Israel, and who came from the waters of Judah, who swear by the name of the Lord and confess the God of Israel, but not in truth or right. For they call themselves after the holy city, and stay themselves on the God of Israel, the Lord of hosts is his name. The former things I declared of old, and they went out from my mouth, and I announced them. Then suddenly I did them, and they came to pass. Because I know that you are obstinate, and your neck is as iron sinew, and your forehead brass. I declared them to you from of old, before they came to pass, I announced them to you. Lest you should say, my idol did them, my carved image and my metal image commanded them. You have heard, now see all this, and will you not declare it? From this time forth I announce to you new things, hidden things that you have not known. They are created now, not long ago. Before today you have never heard of them, lest you should say, Behold, I knew them. You have never heard, you have never heard, you have never known. From of old your ear has not been opened, for I knew that you would surely deal treacherously, and that from before birth you were called a rebel. For my name's sake I defer my anger, for the sake of my praise I restrain it for you, that I may not cut off, that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver, I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. Let us go now to the Lord in prayer as we ask for his help this morning. Gracious God in heaven, Lord, thank you for your great mercy, Lord, your faithfulness through the generations, Lord, from the beginning of time. As soon as we were found to be in rebellion, Lord, you began extending your grace and your compassion, Father. And as we Read your word this morning. We ask that you would give us understanding, Lord, that your spirit would illuminate your word to our hearts and minds. God, that it would truly be good news to our hearts and souls this morning that, that all the glory, all the praise belongs to you, Lord, and that we would delight in giving you the glory and serving uh, you, Lord, that your name would be made great among this church, among this community, Father. 
And so we thank you for sending your Son, Jesus Christ, that he has opened the way, that he has given us access to the throne of grace, that he has removed our sins, our rebellion from us, Lord, and has brought us near to you. And Lord, we pray that you would cause hearts here this morning to see Christ as glorious, to see the glory that you manifest in your Son, and that they would draw near to Christ and receive forgiveness and receive life. And so we pray for your help now, and it is in Jesus' name that we ask. Amen. So I hope that you have been uh, encouraged and have grown in your understanding of God's great work of redemption through Christ as we have looked at these five great themes or, or slogans known as the five solas. And uh, can anyone just shout out for me the solas that we have covered so far, these alone statements that help to capture uh, the essence of the biblical gospel. Uh, we started with which one? By faith alone we are saved, not by our own works, but we are saved by faith alone in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we looked at grace alone. We looked at grace alone, um, how it is only through the grace of God, through that grace which Jesus Christ himself purchased for us, that God would forgive us freely, not based on our own merit or our own righteousness, but according to his kindness. And we looked at the third sola, scripture alone, yes, that it is by uh, the word of God, the scriptures, that we come to know who God is, we come to understand redemption and how it is that he has worked, uh, what he expects of us. The scriptures stand as the authority above all other authorities. And last week we then looked at which of the fourth, the fourth sola, Christ alone, that it is Jesus Christ alone who is the mediator between man and God. He alone is the perfect sacrifice for our sin, that Christ alone uh, is the one who became flesh, the God-man, and, uh, and that's right, so then this week we're going to look at the fifth sola, and uh, it is probably one that you would even recognize in the Latin, soli deo gloria, you know, we recognize some of those words even from our Christmas songs, in excelsis deo, uh, deo being God, gloria, glory, uh, and, and as you know, the sola, the soli there, alone, so to God alone be the glory. To God alone be the glory, is what we will look at this morning. And like many words that we use as Christians, I think glory uh, is one that we, we hear a lot of and we, we read a lot of, but we maybe don't really have a good working definition of what glory means, kind of like holiness. You know, we know that holiness means to be set apart, but what does that really mean when we're talking of God's holiness it doesn't really capture the full essence of what holiness is. Uh, yes, God is, is set apart, but it is also speaking of his infinite purity, his infinite perfection and beauty and the majesty of God. These words, uh, it is hard for us to really, uh, you know, to exhaust the definitions. Um, we really can't grasp the fullness of what these great words mean. And it's the same for glory. Uh, at a basic level, glory, uh, the original word, means weight. It means uh, weight, glory, weightiness. 
And you might say, well, does that mean that those who push the scale down a little bit more are more glorious? Is that what we're talking about when we, when we talk about the, the, the glory of God? Uh, and maybe someone like me, who's a bit of a beanpole, you know, is not as glorious if we're thinking of glory as weight. Uh, but that's not really what the word is, is getting at at all. Um, as you can imagine, in, in ancient times, uh, they would have the balance scales, and these scales were used to measure value. And so at the marketplace, you would expect to find a set of scales as you are purchasing your items, and these scales would be used to determine the weight, uh, the, the, the value. And, uh, and so it's more this picture of value, this picture of beauty, this, this idea of, of God's uh, worthiness, and that He is the most valuable. If you were to have the glory of God uh, who God is on the scale, there is nothing that would even remotely move the scale on the other side in comparison to who God is to his own value. And so this is a little bit of the idea of glory, You're talking about the glory of God, his perfection, his beauty, his value above all other things. Uh, an old writer, Edward Lay, said that the glory of God is the infinite excellency of the divine essence. So it's talking of the fullness of who God is and the beauty and the, the excellency of God's essence. <clears throat> Herman Bavik said this, he said, The glory of the Lord is the splendor and brilliance that is inseparably associated with all of God's attributes and his self-revelation in nature and grace. The glorious form in which he everywhere appears to his creatures. And so we talk of the glory of God, we, we see that this is the fullness of God, all of his attributes, his holiness, his infinite wisdom, his all-knowing power, his infinite power, uh, the immutability of God, that he is unchanging, all of these, all of these attributes of who God is uh, together bring an understanding of the glory, the uniqueness the value of God. Even in creation, we see glimpses of this glory, don't we? You, you stand out at night, you see the northern lights uh, flashing through the night sky, and you're, you're getting a glimpse of the glory of God. Or you watch the rising sun or the setting sun and the beauty of the colors, and you're getting a glimpse of the glory of God. And uh, as Stan was talking, even the, the migration of the birds we're watching now as these birds begin to gather together and prepare for this migration. And, uh, you know, I guess I'm, he was talking about enjoying the, the, the migration, and I guess this past week I was working against it a little bit. I spent some time in a goose blind. And, uh, and so we were shooting at these poor birds as they're trying to prepare for their migration. Um, but even if you're you know, sitting out in that, that blind first thing in the morning before the sun is up and, and getting to witness creation coming awake, uh, just waking up in the morning and the animals start making sounds and the sun begins to warm the earth, and you get these glimpses of God's glory. Now we uh, ultimately see the glory of God when we think about where do we most clearly see this glory of God manifest? Uh, we know that in the face of Jesus Christ, in the person of Christ, the fullness of God's glory was pleased to dwell. That it is in Christ that we see the fullness of grace and truth, as John says. 
or as Paul says in Colossians 1, that he is the image of the invisible God. That in Christ we see the full manifestation of the glory of God, the fullness of his attributes in Jesus Christ, the God-man. Now we think about a statement like, to God alone be the glory, and we think about what this glory means to us living in North America, who are steeped in a humanistic society, in, in a society that has elevated man to the place of, of supremacy, this begins to sound like bad news to our flesh, doesn't it? It sounds like we're going to be shortchanged somehow. If we talk of all the glory going to God, all the praise belonging to God, our flesh cries out and says, what about me? What? Don't forget about me. I would like a little bit of glory. I would like a little bit of praise. And, and it can sound to our natural minds like bad news. Maybe even the end of our happiness. But think for a moment of an eagle soaring through the unseen currents in the sky. Is that a burdensome thing? Is it being shortchanged in that? You'd say, no. The eagle delights to soar in the sky. What about a dolphin that is swimming through the ocean, that is leaping into the air and gliding through the sea? Is it burdensome for that creature to swim, to, to enjoy the, the, the fullness of, of the ocean? No. What about a horse? You could see a, a strong horse running across the, the grassy plain. And do you think that it's a burden for that animal to run, to, to glide across the field in its strength and its majesty? <clears throat> no, it is not a burden. Why? The reason it is not a burden is because this animal was designed to run. The dolphin was designed to swim. It's fulfilling its purpose as it is swimming. The eagle was made to soar upon the sky. So it's not as though they're being shortchanged in fulfilling this purpose. It is their joy. And in the same way, when we talk of God's glory and our role in glorifying Him and ascribing to God glory, it is not as though we are shortchanged. Why? Because we are made to glorify God. We are made to honor Him. To our, our entire existence was designed by God to bring glory to Him. And so it is in this that we find our greatest joy, our greatest satisfaction, our great purpose in all of life as we fulfill this role of glorifying God. And we know that because of sin and that our inability to glorify God, that this happens only in Jesus Christ as we are made new by the Spirit, we are brought from death to life, that we in Christ now begin to fulfill this purpose of truly glorifying God. And so we are not shortchanged at all, but it is, it is our great joy and our, our satisfaction as we give God all the glory. As John Piper has said over and over again, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. God gets the glory that He deserves, and we get the joy as we are caught up in the greatness of God. And so, don't feel as though we are somehow going to miss out as God gets the glory you know, it is like the, the Israelites were guilty of forsaking the fountain of, 
of living water and hewing out for themselves cisterns that were cracked and could hold no water. And it is the same. If we place anything above God, if we ascribe glory to anything above God, we are we are hewing out for ourselves cisterns that can hold no water. We are forsaking the fountain of life, the fountain of living water. And so, let us then turn to our passage in Isaiah as we look at who this God is, this God who is worthy of all glory. And also let us see what he himself says about his glory, his own motivation for why he does what he does in light of his glory. Now a little bit of background. Uh, Isaiah prophesied probably around 740 to 700 BC, somewhere in there, about 700 years um, before the coming of Christ. And Isaiah comes to the people of Israel with basically a twofold message. He first of all is warning the people of coming judgment because of their hard-heartedness, because they have broken the commandment the commandments of God, because they have forsaken the covenants of their father, and they have turned to the false gods of the nations around them, and they have neglected the one true God. And so through the prophet Isaiah, God tells them that he is going to bring judgment upon them because of their disobedience. And the two nations through which God is going to primarily bring this judgment, the Assyrians, and then finally the Babylonian Empire who would ultimately take Israel into exile. And so chapter 1 to 39, you you see the emphasis on this coming judgment, the warnings to Israel to repent. And ending in chapter 39, as, as Isaiah predicts, the invasion of Babylon into Jerusalem and the exile of God's people. But then as towards the end of the book, chapters 40 and following, we begin to see this message of hope coming through more clearly as well, that not only is God going to judge and bring uh, discipline to his people, but there is also this message of hope mingled throughout the book, and especially as we come towards the end, we get these passages of this servant who would come, this servant who would fulfill God's promises, who would walk in God's statutes, who would keep the covenants, and not only that, but this servant, we are told, who would be crushed by the Father for the sake of his people, that by his wounds the people of God would be healed, and this servant would restore the greatness of Jerusalem, would, would lead the people of God in covenant obedience, and this servant ultimately would lead the, the new Jerusalem to be a light to the nations, that the entire world would behold the glory of God through his people led by his servant. And for us, we know that that was ultimately pointing to Jesus Christ, his work and his life and his death, his resurrection, his present reign, that Christ is fulfilling those prophecies. So you see in this chapter, in chapter 48, there is still this this reminder that God is going to, bring judgment that he is, in fact, disciplining his people. But then there's also the talk of restoration, of forgiveness, and um, even the discipline of God leading 
ultimately to the glory of God. So first of all, we see the people to whom God is speaking. Here in Isaiah, specifically, we're told it's the house of Jacob, those who are called by the name Israel, come from the waters of Judah. Those who swear by the name of the Lord confess the God of Israel. This seems to be a good thing. It seems that this is how we would want to be identified as the people of God. Descendants of Jacob, called Israel, God's chosen people, those who swear by the name of the Lord, those who confess God. But sadly we see that there is a problem because it says not in truth or right. And so while there seemed to be an outward acknowledgement that they belonged to God, that they were happy to identify themselves as, as the people of God, the descendants of Jacob, much like the Pharisees in Jesus' day, we saw that they were happy to identify themselves as the offspring of Abraham, as God's covenant people, and yet there is this problem that it is not in truth or right. And so there is this exterior kind of confession, this acknowledging that we belong to God, but then inwardly there is the devotion to the false gods. There is, there is not this trust, this hope that is truly in God himself, but merely an external kind of confession that is not backed by deep faith, deep trust and love for God himself. Now we do want to be careful as we think about these words to the nation of Israel and we want to be careful when we take from the Old Testament and apply it to us in the New Covenant as non-ethnic Jews. But I think in this case, there is most certainly some application for us because it could be said of us now in the New Covenant that we too are of the house of Jacob. We too are called by the name Israel. We too come from the waters of Judah. We swear by the name of the Lord. We confess the God of Israel. After all, Paul himself says in, in Romans that no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Romans 2.28 and later in Romans 9, 6, Paul says, But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descendants from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. Paul makes it clear in his letters to the churches and in all of his writings that it is those who are of faith that are the true sons of Abraham in Galatians 3, 7. And so there's a sense in which spiritually all of those here today who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ are Jews, spiritually Israel, from the descendants of Jacob, brought into the covenant promises of Abraham by faith. And so we need to pay attention as God talks of those who would identify themselves as his people and yet their hearts are not trusting in the Lord that God is not truly the center of their praise. He is not the object of worship. He is not the most glorious in the hearts of His people. Are we not guilty of this at times? A great test oftentimes is when things go wrong in your life, when you face trials and struggles, where is it that you first turn? 
Because there's a thousand other things that we can place our trust in before God. Oftentimes it is after we've exhausted all of our options that we then come to God in prayer asking for His help. But really, we should be coming to God first and foremost with a heart that trusts Him, that delights in Him, that loves Him. And He is our first response. Where do you go when your marriage is struggling, when, you, when you're facing troubles in your marriage? Do you get on your knees and cry out to God, your Father, that, that He would help you, that He would give you wisdom, that He would give you strength, that He would give you a love for your spouse? Or do you pick up the phone first and call mom and complain about how miserable your husband is being or how miserable your wife is being? Where do we turn to first? Do we go to God? Is our hope in Him? And I've been guilty of this as well. Maybe you're, you're, you know, you're sick, you've got a headache, or so you're not feeling well, and, and the first thing we do is we reach for the bottle of Advil or the bottle of Tylenol, and we, we don't even think to stop and just ask God to help, to work on our behalf. And oftentimes we expose ourselves as having put our trust in lesser things. Where do you look for your hope, for your confidence, your bank account? your job security, the economy. Many today, maybe not so much the government, but for for some they look to the government, to our political leaders, to, to somehow bring about the change that we desire, to somehow provide security for us. And yet we forget that we are called by the Lord, that the Lord of hosts is our God, and we should turn to Him first and foremost. And there are many useful tools. I'm not saying that we shouldn't use medicine or that we shouldn't talk to our parents about for counsel or that we shouldn't, uh, you know, work hard to to save some for retirement or any of these things. But, But those should never become the priority, the foundation of our hope that God alone must be the most glorious. So we see to whom God is speaking, then, then God begins to declare uh, His own identity to the people of Israel here in Isaiah 48. And He says that His name is the Lord of hosts. This is the God of Israel, the God of the nation, the God of angel armies. And He says that He has declared former things and He has declared things yet to come. God reminds the people of His sovereignty over history that He declared from the beginning what was going to take place and it is just as He said. It happens as God had already predicted and He tells them He did it this way so that no one could boast in their own wisdom, no one could boast in their idols and say, look, this is what my false God has done, this is what my image made of rock or stone did for them because God alone declared it and God alone caused it to come about. And not only the things that have happened, God says, all of the great history of redemption that God has been unfolding, but also the things that are to come. And for the people of Israel this at this time that Isaiah is prophesying, probably mostly referring to that new city, Jerusalem, that God is telling them is going to come, this servant that's going to lead the people of God in obedience, that is going to become the great sacrifice for God's people. God is predicting these things hundreds of years before they happen, so that people know He is God, He is sovereign, He is the one who is guiding history. This is what Peter 
spoke of in 1 Peter 1.10, that concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. The prophets proclaimed the suffering of this servant and the glories that would follow so that people know God is the one who has done this. He is the one who is sovereign. Even as Paul stood in Athens and proclaimed the gospel to the Athenian people and used this, this idol that had the inscription to the unknown God, Paul proclaims to them the God who is sovereign, the God who has governed history. And he says that uh, the, the, in Acts 17:23 and 24, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by, by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needs anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling, that they should seek God. God is sovereign over history. God is sovereign over the future. And this is all we see to God's glory and to his praise, that the boasting of man would be stripped away and that God alone would be the one to receive the praise and the glory. God rebukes Israel for their hard-heartedness. says that they have acted treacherously. That even from before birth they were called a rebel. God knew that the people whom he would set his favor upon would rebel against him, would turn their hearts away from him. And so then you would ask the question, well, why does he continue? Why, why would he continue extending mercy and grace and compassion and kindness to a people who he knows are going to refuse him? What is motivating God to act in kindness and in grace? What's motivating God to discipline his people that they might return to him? So we have seen the, the people to whom God is speaking. We have seen the God who is speaking, the God who is sovereign, who declares all things. And we see now, uh, lastly, God's motivation for all that he does. The motivation for all that he does. You see verse 9 in Isaiah 48. God says, For my name's sake I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise I restrain it for you that, you, that I may not cut you off. Why does God show compassion? Why does He pardon the guilt of His people? Because He loves us? Yes, that is true. God does love us and the love of God towards us is, is, a, is a beautiful motivation of God. But even above the love of God that He has towards us is the love for His own glory. God uh, says that, that He is deferring His anger towards His people for His own name's sake. For the sake of his own praise. And so the ultimate motivation for God to extend his grace to us is his own glory, his own praise, that it be exalted above all else. In thinking of even, we looked at these five solas. 
faith alone, grace alone, scripture alone, Christ alone. And you might ask the question, why has God orchestrated our salvation, our redemption this way, that it is by faith alone, that we contribute nothing to, to our salvation, but it is by faith is the, the, the instrument that God uses. And, and that grace alone, that there's nothing we contribute to our redemption, to our justification, that it is all the grace of God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Why is the scripture alone the, the standard, the authority, this, this book? It, why, not, why not open up other uh, means of, of revelation that, that we would be able to, you know, go beyond the scriptures themselves or find other authorities in maybe an institution or in a person? Why has God established all of it this way? Why Christ alone? Why, why Jesus Christ coming in His humility, in His incarnation? Why has God set up our redemption the way He has that in Christ alone we would find forgiveness of sins, that through Christ alone we would have a mediator between God and man, and that Jesus alone would be the author of our salvation, our prophet, our priest, and our king. And you could answer all of that by saying, so that the glory of God is held high. It is so that God alone gets all the glory. He has set up the entire history of our redemption, the work of Christ, the way in which we're saved, so that he gets the glory. If you flip over just for a moment to the book of Ephesians, um, just in case you're thinking, well, maybe that's just a Jewish thing. Maybe that's just something in the Old Covenant that God worked uh, you know, in the Old Testament, but the New Covenant is, is different. There's other primary motivating uh, factors going on in the New Covenant, 4 and 7. And of course, in Ephesians 2, we have Paul reminding the Ephesians of where they have come from, that they were dead in their trespasses and sins, that they were enslaved to the demonic prince of power, the spirit that's in work in the sons of disobedience, that we were enslaved to our passions, to our sin, we were children of wrath. But then we find in verse 4 this glorious statement, but God being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us. And there it is, this, this great love of God towards His people, this love that, that we can never fully comprehend, is at work in God's motivation. But as you continue on, we see that He made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now listen to what Paul says in, in verse 7. Why has God done all of this? Why has He rescued us in Christ? Why has He delivered us from darkness to light? Why has He seated us with Christ in the heavenly places and set His grace upon us? Verse 7 says, So that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. So the reason that God has set His favor upon us in Christ Jesus, Paul says, is ultimately that God is wanting to display the immeasurable riches of His grace. Not only to, to mankind, but even to the angels in unseen places, that the entire hosts of heaven and all of even Satan and his, his fallen angels, they all are witnessing the greatness, the glory, the great grace of God. 
through the church. And so we see that the glory of God, the praise of His name, the beauty of His majesty, the, the amazing grace that He extends to us, these are the primary motivating factors in all that God does. Now this might sound a bit selfish, a bit egotistical to us, because if, if a person does this, if a person says, all that I do, all that I'm working for is so that I might exalt myself among you, that I might be great among you, if, if I as your pastor said that everything I'm doing is so that I would be great, so that I would be exalted among you, that would be blasphemy, that would be selfishness, that would be wickedness. But you must understand when we talk of God, we are talking of the difference between a creature and a creator. We are creatures and so we are not to exalt ourselves above one another. We are to acknowledge our humble place as creatures. God alone is the creator, the source of all life, the source of all things. And so God truly is the most glorious, truly is the most beautiful. The tr he truly is worthy of all praise. And so if God exalted anything else above himself, that would be unloving. That would actually be hatred towards us because it would be misleading. It would be pointing us to something that is less valuable than God, less glorious. You could imagine being in a, in a wilderness and, and you're on the verge of, of dying of thirst and, and your friend who, who is with you, he knows that only a few hundred yards away there is a fountain, a, a, a beautiful fountain that is, that is pure and, and full. And if, if he knew that that was there and yet refused to tell you about it, that would not be love, would, would it? it? You wouldn't really count him as much of a friend at all if he knew that just ahead was the, was the means of your salvation and yet he refused to tell you. That would, that would be hatred. He would be, he would be displaying uh, a desire for your death. And so it is for God. He, as the fountain of life, cannot point us to anything other than Himself because that would be misleading. That would be hatred towards us. God must uphold His own glory as most valuable. And this is beautiful for us. It, it, we, have to, we have to fight through our, our, our postmodern humanistic thinking that we should be at the forefront and we have to humble ourselves before the scriptures and acknowledge that this is truth and as you begin to, begin to see that I am here to glorify God, everything in your life begins to take on new meaning. Nothing is meaningless. As you begin to understand you were made to exalt Him. It doesn't matter if you're washing clothes or changing diapers or cooking a meal or pulling wrenches or swinging a hammer or driving a truck or managing a business. All can be done to make the glory of God known, to exalt Him, to delight in Him. And life begins to take on tremendous meaning, tremendous beauty and purpose. I love the example of... Uh, of Sebastian Bach, the famous composer who, who wrote many beautiful songs and, 
and uh, just still today, hundreds of years later, referenced as one of the great musicians of humanity. And, and oftentimes at the bottom of his work, you would find the letters S-D-G, Soli Deo Gloria, to God alone be the glory. And of course, you're probably not going to hear that in, in modern universities, but even some of the great minds of human history understood that they existed to glorify God. And it was not a burdensome thing, it was a delight to ascribe all praise and glory to God. And we find that, that God works to exalt His own glory. He defers His anger that His name would be exalted. And we find even in verse 10 of Isaiah 48 that God says, I've refined you, but not as silver. I've tried you in the furnace of affliction. And he goes on in verse 11, For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. That even as God disciplines his people and brings them back to himself, he is exalting his name, he is upholding his justice, he is upholding the worth of His name to His people. And even that is loving. It is, it is a turning back to life for us. The author of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 12.5 that God disciplines those He loves because He knows that if He lets us go after those broken cisterns that it will bring about our death. Even the cross of Jesus Christ, some would describe as cosmic child abuse. The Father handing His Son over to be crucified, to be beaten. And we're told by the prophet Isaiah that the Father was pleased to crush Him. That, that God planned this. That it wasn't Jesus falling victim to the evil plots of man, while it's true that the evil plots of man were involved, but above that, even in the cross of Christ, the, the sovereignty of God was at work, and God is displaying His glory through His Son, and the Son willingly submits Himself to the Father, that, that God would be exalted, that His glory would be lifted high. We find even for the person of Jesus, as he came to the end of his earthly ministry, as he stood in the shadow of the cross, you hear his, in his desire to glorify God, that he delighted to make much of this glory, even at the cost of his own life. And he knew that, that death would not be the end, but that this, this cup of, of suffering that he must drink would lead to his glory with the Father. In, in John 17, 1, we read this, Jesus praying, Father, the hour has come, glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him all authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Jesus delighted 
to exalt the glory of his Father. And he knew that the Father delighted in him and would restore him to the place of glory that he shared from the beginning with the Father. And so as we close, may we confess complacency towards the glory of God. May we humble ourselves and ask God to fill us with a fresh passion for His glory, for displaying it in all of our lives. May we confess things that we are ascribing glory to other than God in our lives. And if you're here this morning and you've never placed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you, if you have been living for your own glory and have neglected to make much of God and His greatness, you've neglected to acknowledge Christ as Messiah, as Savior, as your perfect sacrifice for your sin, your rebellion against God, then call upon Jesus Christ to save you. For all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And let us live solely Deo Gloria, for the glory of God alone. And in that glory, we too will be changed. All of creation will be made new at the coming of Christ. Our own bodies, we're told, will be glorified. That as we delight in God, we are caught up in His glory, in His beauty. And we are filled with joy everlasting in Christ Jesus. Close with prayer as we finish this morning. Gracious God in heaven, thank you for your word. Lord, we ask that you would cause us by your spirit to humble ourselves, that you would enable us to repent of things that we have placed above you, things that we look to for hope and security, things that we we give more value to in our lives than you, Lord. And I pray that you would expose that, that you would enable us to turn, and God, that you would give us a love and a hunger for your glory. Lord, that we would delight in the purpose that you've made us for, which is to give you praise. Father, and for those that do not know you, those who have not placed their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, would you draw them to yourself and rescue them? Would you call them from darkness into light, that they too May, may proclaim your excellencies, Lord Jesus. Thank you for this congregation. Help us to, to run the race before us with endurance, with steadfastness. Lord, that you would establish our faith firm. And we ask all this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thank you for tuning in today to this sermon. Uh, preached at Fairview Cornerstone Baptist Church. And again, if you have any questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. You can write to us at church at fairviewcornerstone.com. God bless.